Deceptions podcast. Hi, if you're a regular listener to Undeceptions, you'll definitely know that I released a new book in 2021. I talked about it rather a lot. It's called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. Now, we're going to be back with Season 6 in late February, but until then, I thought you might like this series of short readings from Bullies and Saints. It's kind of a cheat sheet for the book, for those who don't want to read the whole thing, and I can respect that. And by the way, you should go back and listen through our back catalogue of episodes. There are 60 full episodes to get your teeth into over January, including a double episode on the Crusades. Now, that's episode 41 and 42, which are particularly relevant for this excerpt today. I hope you enjoy. Bullies and Saints. An honest look at the good and evil of Christian history with John Dixon. But the knights of Christ may safely do battle in the battles of the Lord. Surely, if he kills an evildoer, he is not a man-killer, but an evil-killer. Hi, I'm John Dixon, and welcome to this super series on my new book, Bullies and Saints. Bullies and Saints looks back on the history of the Christian church and asks the hard question, has it been better or worse for the world? Each episode, I'll give you a free excerpt of the Bullies and Saints audiobook. In this edition, I'm going to introduce you to two characters that display all that's been good and bad about the followers of Jesus. Ebolus, the priest and crossbowman, and Bernard of Clairvaux, a theologian and the instigator of the Knights of Christ. One factor in the church's growing acceptance of violence is often overlooked. Part of the cultural negotiation between Christianity and pagan Europe was the church's growing approval of the warrior tradition at the heart of Frankish and Saxon or Germanic society. European tribal groups sustained themselves either by annual raids on neighbours and distributing booty to their kin, or, for the less powerful, by submitting themselves by treaty to dominant warlords. Plundering and tribute were the key means of achieving social and economic cohesion. It was a European tradition going back centuries. This is the setting the church found itself in between the year 500 and 900, even as it went about trying to convert everyone. In the process of evangelizing medieval warlords, the church had no option but to recognize their values, Timon explains. The Clovises of the world had to be flattered in order to be persuaded. Their deeds had to be endorsed before they could be reformed and the economic realities of the warrior tradition had to be accepted if the church was to ride on the backs of the war machine with the message of salvation for all. In such a world, the virtues of the Frankish warrior and the good Christian coincided. Pretty soon, bishops in these regions were chosen from among warrior elites, just as in 5th century Rome they had been drawn from the senatorial class. They would appear as great noblemen, complete with their own private war bands. 
We know of one abbot ahead of a monastery named Ebolus of Saint-Germain in Paris, who was praised for his prowess with the ballista, an oversized crossbow, during the Viking siege of Paris in 885 to 886, he boldly defended the city. One contemporary monk named Arbo, an eyewitness to the battle, excitedly tells us that Ebolus, quote, was capable of piercing seven men with a single arrow. In jest, he commanded some of them to be taken to the kitchen. In other words, to be eaten for dinner. The words are part of a poem and engage in obvious hyperbole. But this is something unique. A Christian warrior priest praised in the language of a classical hero. When Pope Urban II announced the First Crusade in November 1095, the stage had long been set for a Europe-wide response, which harnessed the ancient warrior tradition and repurposed it for Christ. When the crowds in Clermont that day replied with, God wills it, they were not, in their minds, taking a shocking new turn in the Christian life. They were expressing the fulfilment of centuries of cultural fusion between the universalistic vision of Christianity and the heroic tradition of a warrior elite. The result was Christian holy war fighting the enemies of God with a full papal guarantee that such violence was not only permissible, but redemptive for the sincere knight of Christ. In such a mood, it seemed entirely plausible for an accomplished monk like Bernard of Claveau, 1090 to 1153, to write about sacred violence. He was best known in his day for treatises on love for God. But in the wake of the First Crusade, he penned his famous In Praise of the New Knighthood. It assures the soldiers of the newly established Knights Templar that fighting in a crusade is not the same as fighting for worldly honour. Bernard criticises traditional forms of knighthood, which aimed at wealth and glory, and contrasts it with being Christ's knight. But the knights of Christ may safely do battle in the battles of the Lord, fearing neither the sin of smiting the enemy nor danger of their own downfall, inasmuch as death for Christ, inflicted or endured, there is no taint of sin, but deserves abundant glory. Surely, if he kills an evildoer, he is not a man-killer, but, if I may so put it, an evil killer. Clearly, he is reckoned the avenger of Christ against evildoers and the defender of Christians. I should add that Bernard, or Saint Bernard as he is known in the Catholic tradition, goes on in the text to exhort the Crusaders to act with justice, to dress modestly, and to pursue peace and frugality rather than earthly glory. In theory, this was a highly moral form of warfare. Abuses such as we occasionally see among special forces today, whether among Australian or US troops, would have been regarded as damnable, literally damnable. Still, Bernard's full-throated defence of holy violence is unmistakable and, for me, utterly depressing. I'm particularly struck 
By the way, Bernard of Cliveau took New Testament military metaphors and concretized them. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first century apostle likens the Christian life to warfare against temptation and persecution. The symbolic nature of the paragraph could hardly be clearer. Let me read it. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. Paul's armour of God is metaphorical. He even explains each item. The belt is truth, the breastplate is righteousness, and so on. But a thousand years after Paul, St. Bernard alludes to this same New Testament imagery to endorse actual armour and weaponry. The knight who puts the breastplate of faith on his soul in the same way as he puts a breastplate of iron on his body is truly intrepid and safe from everything, writes Bernard. So forward in safety, knights, and with undaunted souls drive off the enemies of the cross of Christ, that is, Muslims in the Holy Land. Bernard of Claveau made an extraordinary interpretive manoeuvre. I noted in chapter 12 that Jews in the period of Jesus believed that the holy wars of the Torah, the Old Testament, did not justify expansionist holy wars in their day. We also saw that Christians went a step further and allegorised the battles of Joshua to be pictures of spiritual warfare, as in Paul's metaphor. But a millennium after Jesus and Paul, Bernard reconcretizes Old Testament holy war and he turns Paul's spiritual warfare upside down and inside out in an effort to encourage soldiers to fight Muslims in the East. Christopher Tyerman puts it well. It is a measure of the pragmatism, sophistication, some might say sophistry and sheer intellectual ingenuity that there was an ideology of Christian holy war at all. Thanks for listening to this excerpt from my new book, Bullies and Saints. Click over to Amazon.com where you can pick up a copy of the full audiobook or a print copy if you like the feel of paper in your hand, like I do. And if you've enjoyed the content, let me encourage you to go to the Undeceptions website where you'll find much more like it, including my Undeceptions podcast. That's undeceptions.com. See ya. An Undeceptions podcast.